Chapter 19 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The classic tragedy of Ariadne was produced during this season at the Olympic. The Ariane of Thomas Cornell, the younger brother, by twenty years, of the great Pierre Cornell, the father of French drama, was rendered into English blank verse by John Oxenford, Esquire. The French Ariane is one of Rochelle's most magnificent personations. The female entrance predominates throughout the play. Indeed, it is almost a monologue, and the character of Arane affords rich capabilities for the display of tragic powers. Laop says truly of Arane, Cette piece est une range de celles qui ont joué souvent, lorsque actrice vient distinguishée par un rôle capable de faire voiler. The greenest laurels I ever won in London, at least of the Melpomene chaplet, were awarded to the interpretation of the wronged Greek maiden. Mr. Davenport represented Theseus and looked the hero, the author permits no more. Phaedra, the sister of Ariadne, rendered by a mediocre actress, would have been an unimpressive character. But Miss Vinning, in the fourth act, electrified the audience by Phaedra's impassioned burst of remorse after she has consented to betray her sister and fly with Theseus. In Thomas Cornell's version, Ariadne is not succored by the god Bacchus, according to the old classical story, but on the discovery of her abandonment by Theseus, falls upon a sword and expires. The catastrophe is altered by Mr. Oxenford in the English version. A very startling scenic effect is produced by the leaping of Ariadne from a rock and her plunging into the sea while the ship of Theseus is disappearing in the distance. The stage execution of this novel termination was managed in a manner worthy of mention. Three Ariadnes, all similarly costumed and twin in resemblance, lent their aid to the accomplishment of the thrilling disaster. The closing scene of the play represents a wildly picturesque portion of the island of Naxos. In the distance rolls the sea. On one side, a ledge of rocks rises to a dizzy height. From there juts out a single peak, the loftiest summit of the island. Ariadne is pacing the shore when the terrible intelligence is disclosed that she is deserted by Theseus, and that Phaedra has fled in his company. A moment afterwards, she beholds in the distance the ship which is bearing the fugitives to Athens. Frenzied at the sight, she rushes up the rocks and climbs the highest peak to catch the last glimpse of the vessel. When it disappears, she is overcome by despair and leaps into the sea. 
the climbing of these rocks and the execution of the theatrical stratagem by which the leap appears to be made by ariadne was a rather perilous experiment for a person of impetuous temperament and easily carried away by an exciting personation it was decided that i could not be trusted to make the dangerous ascent a girl was selected from the ballet who strongly resembled me ariadne's grecian robe with its rich border of blue and gold her double crown and jewelled zone were duplicated for my counterfeit ariadne the second but this was not all the classic costume had to again be repeated for the toilette of ariadne the third a most lifelike lay figure the face arms and bust of the latter were modelled from a statue and were too faultless for the other two ariadnes to object to their inanimate representative it was found no easy matter at rehearsal to persuade our timid ariadne the second to even walk up the steep rocks she stopped and shrieked halfway up protested she was dizzy and might fall and would not advance a step further after about a half an hour's delay during which the poor girl was encouraged coaxed and scolded abundantly she allowed the carpenter who planned the rocky pathway to lead her carefully up and down the declivity and finally she rushed up alone our lay representative was couched at the top ready for her flight through the air ariadne the second at a certain cue suddenly falls upon her face concealed from the audience by an intercepting rock at the same moment a spring is touched and the lay figure with uplifted arms leaps from the cliff and drops into the abyss beneath at night ariadne the first on beholding the ship of theseus uttered a prolonged shriek broke away from king onarius and his friends who impeded her steps and flew up the rocks but turning a cliff at no great height from the stage sprang off behind the scenes in the arms of a person stationed to receive her steps for her descent were found unavailable at the instant ariadne the first disappeared ariadne the second darted from behind the cliff and swiftly clambered the rocky heights until she reached their very summit ariadne the first uttered the impassioned language of the greek maiden from behind the scenes while ariadne the second was toiling up the rocks and supposed to be speaking at the words die ariadne die from the lips of ariadne the first ariadne second sinks upon the rock and ariadne third made her first appearance and unhesitatingly sprang into the sea the resemblance of the three ariadnes must have been striking for i have been told the changes could not be detected by the most powerful opera glass the illusion was so perfect that on the night of the representation when ariadne leaped on the rock a man started up in the pit exclaiming in a tone of genuine horror good god she is killed the success of ariadne determined the manager to offer the public a series of new plays this announcement caused some of the first dramatists in london to devote their talents to the interest of the theatre the first play accepted 
was the historical tragedy of Marie de Moran by Mr. Marston, author of The Patrician's Daughter, Strathmore, etc. I was to personate Queen Marie. The Misanthrope by Douglas Gerald was the next drama put into rehearsal. Mr. Gerald read his play to the assembled company in the green room. Miss Vining and myself were both called to the reading. It was anticipated that I would decline the role of the heroine. The part would, in that case, be enacted by Miss Vining. Mr. Gerald expressed a desire that I should embody the character in spite of its avowed insignificance, and after listening to two acts, I consented. A new classical drama entitled Uxmal by Mr. Harold, containing many original situations and some poetry of a high order, was under consideration and would have been accepted. Added to these, Lee Hunt had sent to me his drama of Lover's Amazements with the hope that I would be the means of introducing it to the public. This drama had been written some years. Lee Hunt states that the equal amounts of interest with which the four principal characters are invested had been the barrier to the play's production. The larger portion of the leading actors dread a rival on the dramatic field, whom the author has furnished with weapons as powerful as their own. Lover's Amazements was, however, accepted at the Olympic, and the characters were to have been filled by Mr. Davenport, Mr. Brooke, Miss Vining, and myself. The proverbial jealousy which characterizes even many distinguished members of the profession may be detected in various ways by an audience, and it is well that it should be. The following are a few enlightening hints. One strong evidence of jealousy makes itself apparent when an actor backs up the stage, as it is called, while another is delivering important speeches addressed to him, thus compelling the speaker to turn his back to the audience, or talk his shoulder to a person behind him. When the parties on stage do not stand side by side, or in a semicircle, if several chance to occupy the stage at the same time, the proper situation of the one who has the most important passage to deliver, be he star or the humblest subordinate, is a little in retreat of the others. In this position he faces the audience and yet looks toward those whom he is addressing. Few are the leading actors who will accord this just privilege to an actor of inferior rank. Another straw by which a shrewd observer may detect which way the wind of envy blows is the readiness of an actor to interrupt the applause which the audience are about to bestow on another by hastening his own replies when he finds the plaudits about to commence. An audience who would follow the play are thus compelled to be silent, and, though the trick of an envious brother, the actor loses the encouragement upon which many depend for inspiration. When an actor distracts the attention of the audience by inappropriate or superabundant by-play, or fidgeting and muttering while another actor is delivering effective language, it is a certain symptom of the narrow-mindedness which dreads to behold a rival win public favor.
the perfect representation of a play demands that every actor should be allowed the untrammeled use of his abilities it is often in the power of the audience themselves to secure him this desirable privilege while the four new plays which i have mentioned above were in the course of preparation our tidings from the invalid at trinidad grew sadder than ever letters written by a hand so feeble that it seemed hardly able to guide the pen confirmed our worst fears the arrival of every steamer became a day of dread every letter was the herald of fresh alarm until the pulses of hope were almost stopped or chained to long despairs just at this period letters from america brought intelligence of an exciting and distressing nature these combined sorrows had a serious effect on my already overtasked mind i lost the power of mental concentration so essential on the stage worse yet i lost my memory which up to that period had been marble to retain sometimes while personating characters with which i was most familiar which i had acted again and again without altering a syllable of the text the words would suddenly fade from my thoughts i could not recall even the subject of the dialogue prompting was useless now and then i recovered myself by a determined effort more frequently i had to depend on my sympathizing laborers to conceal as far as possible my entire obliviousness behind the scenes i kept the book of the play in my hand and studied continually but to no purpose i constantly went upon the stage in an agony of dread uncertain whether i would struggle through the coming scene the theatre became to me a region full of terrors i must relate as rapidly as possible the events next in order they are too painful to be dwelt upon i would gladly omit them could i do so conscientiously against the manager of the olympic theatre whose many charities whose great liberality whose unvarying kindness had won him the respect and esteem of the whole company were brought appalling charges he had been for many years the accountant of an assurance association he was accused of some species of fraud or embezzlement i believe these were not the legal terms used it was however their meaning the theatre was suddenly closed the company scattered the manager, confident to all appearance of being acquitted, gave himself up for trial. Several days previous to the occurrence of this last terrible event, I became so seriously ill that my name was withdrawn from the bills. Miss Vining assumed the characters which I usually personated. The new shock completed what accumulation of sorrows had begun. Immediately after the closing of the theatre, I was attacked with brain fever. The four succeeding months are a blank to me. There are no distinct records in the book of memory. My recollection is of opening my eyes, from sleep, as I thought, upon the countenance of Dr. W., who was intently gazing in my face. He was sitting by my bed. A nurse, whose kind features were unfamiliar to me, stood on one side on the other a much beloved female friend i did not recognize the room in which i was lying i had been removed there during my illness 
I remember hearing the doctor whisper to my friend, Hush, she is coming to herself. He asked me if I knew him. I answered in the affirmative and thought the question an odd one, for he was a physician whose friendship I greatly prized. Of the lapse of time, I had not the remotest conception. Dr. W. wisely determined not to deceive me in regard to my illness or any of the events which had taken place during my long unconsciousness. At my eager inquiries, he took up the broken chain of my memory and supplied the missing links. Mr. Mawet had returned to England some months previous. He was better. I should soon be allowed to see him. The theatre, it was still closed. It had been open but for one night, and that was on the occasion of a benefit given to Miss Vinning. The company were heavy losers. The manager? Very gently, the kind doctor communicated the fearful intelligence that related to him. He had been tried, convicted, severely sentenced. The shock had overpowered his reason. He had perished the same night by his own hand. The jury of inquest had brought in a verdict of temporary insanity. I cannot attempt any description of my meeting with the one being whose sufferings had been as great as my own, greater, for I retained no recollection of physical afflictions. Through the sunshine of joy that irradiated his face, I could trace many a deep furrow, ploughed by grief and disease, which was not there when we parted. His health was still in the most precarious state, though he had rallied during the spring months. He landed in England before any letter could apprise him of my illness. During his absence and after his return, I had been most tenderly nursed by faithful friends, to whose unwearied devotion I have every reason to believe I owe my life. How well I recall the strange thrill that ran through me when I lifted my hand to my head. The long, abundant tresses had disappeared. A few round rings of hair were left in their place. They told me that my physician and friends were very anxious that my hair should be preserved. Its weight encumbered my head when confined by comb or band, and when loosened became inextricably tangled around my shoulders. I constantly entreated that it might be cut off. No one was willing to perform the office. The demand was looked upon as raving of the fever. One day I had been accidentally left alone for a few minutes, and a pair of scissors lay in a work-basket near me. I was found sitting up in the bed, the shorn ringlets severed closely from my head, lying in every direction. The mistress of the wardrobe, who on the night of my London debut had sneered at the heap of hair as an unaristocratic adornment, would have been well pleased. Mr. Mawet had visited Dr. W.'s water cure establishment at Malvern. He was very desirous of making further trial of hydropathic treatment. I also prepossessed in its favor. In about a fortnight, after my first return to consciousness, I was able to accompany him to Malvern. A bed was made for me in the railway carriage, and I bore the journey with less fatigue than could have been anticipated. End of chapter 19